0: Welcome to the podcast where we clear up common misconceptions in biology and evolution
1: and learn that all the answers to evolution's mysteries are simple in the way that everything is astoundingly complicated.
0: Welcome to Darwin's Black Book.
1: My name is Tom Land, a zoologist from the University of Southampton.
0: And I'm Rebecca, a PhD researcher in evolution and genetics at the University of Exeter. So, Tom, you like to travel, don't you? You've been to quite a few pretty cool places around the world.
1: It's true, I do like to travel, primarily because of the food, sometimes because of the wildlife, but...
0: But you always, you always tell me that you've got itchy feet, and... Yep. I, of course, I love to travel as well.
1: Like going wandering. Yeah, go for the view. Actually, the view is good.
0: <laughs> so, what are the reasons that you would you would say people like you, you and I, go travelling for for holidays, for research, to you know learn learn more about who you are as a person, to become <laughs> grow, more worldly. Is it, is it? <laughs> I'm
1: just going to go there to grow. Yeah. Yes,
0: find out who you really are. All of are. the above. Well, they're all they're all very good reasons also really like to travel, but not for holidays or for for finding, finding themselves or for finding deeper meaning. They travel as part of their life pattern. In fact, they have evolved migrations to get to better environments for certain parts of their life cycle or as the seasons change. They do this in so many diverse ways that a whole branch of biology has been dedicated to it, and that's called movement ecology. So this is just basically when you look at where an animal goes and when. Um, And it can tell you loads of cool stuff, like where you can see animals at certain times of year, and it can also be useful for conservation. So um, when you're mapping out national park boundaries, so you want to keep all the animals happy in the places that they live in, so they can get... Connecting,
1: I was going to say connecting uh, national parks as well, when you've got to corridors and putting, putting... yeah, connecting reserves up as well, very Yeah, important. and then
0: putting, sort of farmers can put holes in fences so little animals can get through when they need to get on their way. Um, or
1: smaller fences when elephants walk over them.
0: Yes, even better.
1: The very, I saw <laughs> Recently I saw a very polite elephant in the news that was uh, actually climbed over fences without oh, damaging or touching them. It's very, very polite. Very
0: polite using those <laughs> knees. Um, and they're also really useful for zoos when they want to mimic the natural environment of an animal if you want to know kind of its home range. Um, or how, how far it normally travels, you kind of want to make an enclosure to represent that, to keep them happy. And studying them in this way can also give us ideas about why they move. So are they moving to a better nesting site? Are they looking to find mates somewhere warmer for the winter? Um, there's a lot of reasons. So we decided to dedicate a whole episode to this.
1: So yeah, we want to focus on migrations going on at the moment, at the time of recording. It's the end of summer, global conditions are a little rough around the edges, and it's nice to think what else is going on out there in the world far away in nature. So, what is migration I think is the first and foremost thing to clarify.
0: Yeah, so it's basically just animals moving a long way away to aid with their survival, and it can include journeys between east and west, really complex round trips involving land and ocean, Altitudinal journeys up and down mountains, vertical movements through or over oceans and lakes. is so much diversity, I can't even finish this sentence. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't know if it went from super, It's like, yeah, these journeys can go from east or west or extremely complicated <laughs> journeys through the oceans. But yeah, so why, why have these things evolved, I think? Uh, why is it useful? Why... We touched upon it in the introduction, but why mm-hmm. are animals travelling?
0: So, migration is an adaptive response to the seasonal or geographic variation of resources. And that was the definition for this that was coined in 1982.
1: (laughs) No, go on, read the author. You've written the author down, read the author. (laughs) She's written the reference down, and honestly.
0: Go through. (laughs) Row, nineteen eighty-two. G
1: a u t h r e a u x.
0: I'll ask my friend who speaks French. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, <laughs> so it's an adaptive response to changes in seasons or uh, geography. So this can be shorter distances to find food or more favourable living or breeding conditions. Fish and crabs
1: often do this,
0: or a place to hibernate, like little brown bats.
1: Finding the perfect cave.
0: Yes, the little batties.
1: That is so sweet. Um,
0: And resources needed in different life stages may be found in different locations. So somewhere that's suitable while you're a juvenile before you're an adult. It may have everything you need in one place. But when you become an adult and need to look for a mate, you may not have everything you need there. So you need to move.
1: Exactly. And a big part of travelling is being able to navigate. And some of us have been given the gift of direction by evolution. And some of us haven't, an, and I am staring at Becca right now. You are staring at lost. me. She gets lost in supermarkets. Um, I have a
0: terrible sense of direction in uh, everybody every else single... in my immediate family. is very geography-oriented in their, <laughs> their careers and life. Um, and and I, just, I just don't know which way is up half the time. I just can't tell the direction I've walked from. Um
1: uh... I'm not exaggerating. So migrations are quite incredible. When there is a goal of, there there is a single goal for hundreds upon thousands, maybe even millions of individuals um, share that one goal and nothing is going to get in their way. They travel as one, they navigate as one nothing is going to stop them from achieving that goal uh some of them stay at their destination for a short period of time fulfilling a role that has occurred for countless generations at the spots but no matter if islands have risen or fallen mountains have grown in the way like the japanese cranes flying over the himalayas or even perhaps continents have shifted like eels have that issue but they will find their way to their location and some of the ways they navigate include mental maps creating a 3d space that can be navigated uh, in their heads they know where they are they know the surrounding area the topography of the landscape orangutans are very very good with this and they know exactly where the food springs up in the uh, landscape as well
0: mental maps are really cool because they're in some definitions they're a sign of intelligence if a species is able to create a mental map that they can follow then they're often really successful like birds
1: Another way of navigating is through the use of landmarks, particularly interesting parts of the landscape to act as waypoints. Starlings are known to use this. They travel up to 800 kilometers or 500 miles uh, home when they've just been dumped in a random spot they've never been to before. They can navigate their way back by looking at specific landmarks. Um, swallows can travel over 1800km from Africa to Europe through that very method. Uh, bees and wasps find um, the location of their nest through landmarks. You've got gannets. Um, they circle their colonies to basically search for the most obvious thing that they might find when they're returning back. Um, or you've got chemical landmarks utilizing the scent of flowers in the region or another individual that has passed by. Slugs regularly do this. Uh, we've got, yeah, so focusing more on chemicals scent we've got Probably that's more water-based, as as the particles of chemical hang around longer in the water. What
0: about ants? They follow pheromones, don't they?
1: Yes, ants, yeah, ants is another really good one, actually. The whole colony runs off pheromone signals um, as well to navigate. (laughs) So it's much harder to pick up since in the air, but uh, specifically water-based, you've got salmon. Uh, They swim back from the Atlantic slash Pacific Oceans back to their river of origin where they were born to spawn themselves, you've got eels, they go from the rivers of Europe right across the Atlantic to the Sargasso Sea and back, and this is probably thought to be when America, well, the continent of North America was a lot closer to Europe. In fact, it was much shorter migration and now they have to cross a literal ocean. But then we've got things like magnetic fields and navigating those like pigeons, but probably not because it has been proven against that they can't detect magnetic fields, maybe? So how do they I'm know? Saying this, I'm, I'm saying this with a massive question mark because honestly, this is quite a... Con- this is a a place in which arguments spring up in science that people aren't entirely sure. So
0: you're talking about the Earth's magnetic field, right?
1: yes and and the fact they they can detect it and and use that to navigate to specific places but and
0: pigeons may or may
1: not be able to May (laughs) watch this space (laughs) other animals may or may not be able to so yeah Mm. it's so weak that um yeah watch this space uh other ways they help to navigate light um it's not again this is a, a not proven one animal migrations are very hard to figure out how they do it because they do it so well and it's not obvious it is not obvious at all on how they travel thousands upon thousands of kilometers uh so accurately but you have got celestial bearings um maybe uh, navigating according to the angle of the sun and their destination but that doesn't explain unknown wh- when an animal is put in an unlocate unknown location and manages to travel back home because you need to know where the sun is in accordance to your destination and if you don't know where your destination is you can't navigate with the sun.
0: That's incredible. So you can just stick one of these animals anywhere on the world, and it'll be able to go home.
1: That's like starlings. You can stick them 800 kilometres away, and they'll find their way home. Wow. It's. I couldn't it's, do that. You can't find your way out of Sainsbury's, but you know. What my
0: bad direction is? I can follow directions. I can read maps. I understand compasses. But You're if very you good say to maps. me, thank you. But if you say to me, which direction? Did you start off at? after I've done some walking in a lot of different places? I will no, point I in the complete wrong way. That's what I mean by bad it's directions. Weird.
1: I feel bad now. <laughs>
0: anyway, I'm with the podcast.
1: <laughs> I'm with the podcast. Finally, one of the most, uh, I'll say one of the most remarkable ways that animals actually commu- um, communicate. <laughs> one of the most remarkable ways that animals manage to navigate can be seen in the robin the european robin is well it's it's quantum biology and it's the use of an internal compass and i quote here uh of a radical pair of electrons in tune with the earth's magnetic field and that was a quote from life on the edge the coming of age of quantum biology by jim Khalili and john joe mcfadden if you want to know more read that or um wait until we do an episode because this deserves so much more than a really quick brief mention this is this is super cool.
0: Yeah. And um, Jim Al-Khalili is doing some absolutely fantastic science communication work on quantum biology, which sounds big and terrifying. But the way because... he explains it, it, well, I mean, it's still, you still can't understand it, but it makes you understand <laughs> why you can't understand. You'll see <laughs> either, yeah, either way for us to do one on his work or you can read this book, which is fantastic. So, moving on, um, some quick facts about animals that migrate. The smallest thing to migrate are zooplankton. Tom, please define this for our lovely listeners.
1: <laughs> Just put me on the spot, that's fine. Um, so, zooplankton, yeah, that's, plankton is can be an animal or a plant or algae. The zoo bit of zooplankton suggests it's an animal. Uh, it's dispersed through the water column by the currents. Um, in the oceans. Uh, krill is a good example of zooplankton. It is the basis for, well, nearly all food chains, uh, f- food networks in the ocean itself. Um, but if you hold your breath and float in the sea, technically, because you're an animal and you're being carried by the sea's currents, not on your own motor... Sc- um, you're not swimming. Not Yeah, not on your own power. Technically, you'd be classified as zooplankton.
0: OK, you've kind of ruined that fact because this fact was the smallest thing to migrate in a human... So that's not actually yes, correct, is it? Big. Because if we can be zooplankton, then... Okay, a no, type they are of small. zooplankton...
1: No, there are thousands <laughs> of species of, of things that can be classed as zooplankton.
0: Okay, so the smallest thing that can migrate is a zooplankton. Okay, the biggest thing to migrate is a blue whale. So,
1: Which isn't zooplankton. No,
0: because <laughs> they swim. Excellent. I'm not going to ask you to divine this one, Tom, because people seem to know what blue whales are. The longest round trip, so from start to finish and back again, is the Arctic Turn, which travels 80,000 kilometres. That's far. (laughs) That's really far.
1: Arctic to Antarctic, back to the Arctic again.
0: And one of the longest non-stop flights, as in they don't rest, they just go, is the Bar-Tailed Goodwit. They're in Alaska for breeding, then go directly to Australia to avoid the short days, because they, they like the long days because it lets them eat for a, a longer period. And that's eight thousand I'm assuming kilometres, Tom, you haven't written units. Sorry, is, I'm
1: sorry. <laughs> this is your bit. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's so that's uh that is From Alaska across the Pacific to Australia is about eight thousand kilometres. However, if they go through uh well, the other way across all of the continents, uh, and they go east that's fifteen thousand kilometers, and considering it takes them nine days, i'm assuming they go across the pacific
0: wow that's yeah, that's a really long way, so it's a bar-tailed goodwit, and because they don't stop, they have a wingspan of thirty inches, and they they're really pretty birds, very elegant, very long beaks.
1: They are really small to be flying mm. that far.
0: So time for a bit of history on animal migration. The earliest known animal migration is actually in prehistoric sharks, which were migrating 310
1: million years ago. Which is all... Actually, I want to point out really quickly, sharks, I'm going to just butt in here, sorry. Um, so sharks originated 420 million years ago. And to put things in perspective, trees originated 370 million years ago. Sharks are older than trees.
0: Yes but their migrations are not older than trees. <laughs> this is getting way too complicated, unnecessarily complicated. <laughs>
1: okay. Amazing.
0: So this, this species of prehistoric shark was first discovered in 1969, but their work on migrations was only published in 2012, so quite recently, by Salon and Coates in the Journal of Vertebrate Palaeontology. These sharks looked really funny. They're called Bandringa sharks, And they don't look like the typical sharks you see today. They had really long snouts with kind of a spoon shape on the end. They were cool. Mm. And they lived in rivers, but they swam down to the sea to breed and care for young. And the scientists found remains in Illinois, or what is now Illinois, in three sites. And they found some egg casings, some bones and some soft tissue from juveniles and hatchlings. And the three sites that they collected these from were segregated by age. So the juveniles and hatchlings were found alongside the eggs by the coast, while the bodies of the adults were found inland. And the coastal site is the oldest known example of a shark nursery.
1: Which is really quite sweet. Mm. That is. And it's I suppose it's easy to forget a little bit as well. These migrations have been going on for absolutely millions of years. Sharks are 410 million years old, much older than trees, only about 370 million years old for those. So yeah, it, it's, it's sometimes... Uh, easy to forget how long these things have been going on for and easy to forget how much is migrating in the oceans as well and to have the first recorded migrations for these sharks is actually something quite extraordinary especially as their skeletons are really quite tricky to fossilize uh, because they're made of cartilage and yeah the bandringa shark were approximately up to 10 feet but was probably a uh, probably quite a young one and also it's a coastal migrator and on sharks just a little bit you've got three different types of migrating shark you've got the local sharks like nurse sharks in the shallows of florida you've got the coastal pelagic sharks which basically just means they um just up and down the water column uh near the coast for about 1600 kilometers or a thousand miles around coastlines uh staying in the shallows of the oceans as it were they include tiger sharks oceanic black tips but then you've got the oceanic pelagics the pelagic the living in the massive water column. Um but these are the big ones, the ones that can traverse entire oceans following the currents around the world. Include the Mako shark, blue shark, loads of those off the coast of Wales at the moment. Um and also the white shark, which holds the record um for the longer shark migration of twenty thousand kilometers in nine months. That is that is speedy. If you want to know more about shark migrations as well, there is oh the whale shark has so much so much information on the whale shark but emperors of the deep is a really good book uh all about the shark's snare their, their world by bill McKeever it's just come out so check that one out as well we're not sponsored by any of us we're just i just like <laughs> i like these books
0: sponsored by whale sharks <laughs> so while the earliest known migration was in a shark the earliest evidence of humans being aware of animal migration wasn't in sharks? It dates back to the Stone Age, where there were rock art images drawn by the people uh, about 20,000 years ago. So kind of cave art. And they were portraying animals moving across the African savanna. And these were, we think, produced by nomadic hunter gatherers. And it could have worked as a guide to what animals were good for food or as a visual record of good hunting areas to sort of pass down information or in case they forgot, they have a record of it.
1: I was going to say as well, that's really, really interesting as well, because that's showing a conscious uh, knowledge uh, of the environment and um, quite, in it, yeah, I mean, art, <laughs> they're doing art and also they're understanding their environment, what's in their environment and what's good for eating. And yeah, it's really interesting anthropologically as well.
0: Yes, definitely. And the philosophers of ancient Greece were the first to develop a theory of why animals migrate. So what is this migratory behaviour? Why do they move? Although their reasons were kind of magical, um, they, they were the first ones that people came up with to explain them.
1: I love it because the Greeks always came up with either really, really good ideas or they were just nuts.
0: <laughs> so this is um, Aristotle, the Greek philosopher. He realised that a number of birds left where he was in the summer. And his creative explanation for the sudden disappearance of birds like warblers and swallows wasn't that they had left, it was they had morphed into different species that you did see in the winter, like fish. And this was called transmutation. (gasps) I've heard of this. (laughs) (laughs) And it persisted well into the Middle Ages in Europe. So he believed that during the winter, birds would turn into fish. And people believe this for a very long time because what other evidence did they have? They didn't know the birds were travelling so far.
1: Um, I've literally just remembered. The, in the 1700s, there was a Scandinavian uh, natural historian, can't remember his name, he yeah, was looking at the uh, swallows and house martins that migrated up to Europe from Africa every summer and went back in the winter. In the winter, yeah, he saw some of them skimming the lake and he assumed, because there were no fish in this lake, they had all turned to pebbles. So it's the same They just they just turned okay. to pebbles. Different so. kind of
0: transmutation.
1: Way just into him yeah. And then they stopped being pebbles when it warmed up. I. I mean, why not
0: really? If you didn't know.
1: Why not? Because they're pebbles. Just... Becca, because they're pebbles. <laughs> I mean, people believed a lot of stranger things than that. Did this man have a brain? They're birds. They cannot turn into. Pe- yeah. Okay. It's. It's the 1700s, this guy. He, he should have known better. He should. I'm sorry. 1700s, he should have known better.
0: Another theory, which is widely believed in the 1800s. <laughs> Moving on. Was that migratory birds disappeared into mud at the bottom of ponds and lakes where they would spend the winter. <gasps> so, so they similar. didn't.
1: Oh, okay.
0: So they didn't similar. change into something else. They thought they just went into mud and I guess kind of hibernated and they thought they just came out again. So odd. Migrations aren't just a thing of the past. They are happening at lots of different times of year, and there are some happening right now. So we have each chosen an example of a migration happening, or about to happen right now, coming towards the end of summer. So I've chosen the willow warbler, Phylloscopus tricholus. And these are birds. They're quite small, about blue tit sized. They're very round. And they're dark yellow birds that arrive in the UK between April and May, all the way from southern Africa. And then they go back there in September.
1: They're really sweet. They're so cute they're so soft. They are adorable. So soft.
0: And that's more than 5,000 miles across seas, mountains and deserts. But when they're here in the UK, they like woodland. They have a really melodic sort of rippling song, and I'm going to play it now. So they're due to go back to Southern Africa quite soon. So if you're going to any woodlands in the UK right now, you can listen up for that sound and see if you can witness them. But they're often confused with the Chiff Chaff, which is another spring migrant that looks very similar. In fact, the Willow Warbler, the Chiff Chaff and the Wood Warbler, it used to be believed that they were all one species until Gilbert White of Selburn realised they all had different sounds and separated them into the three species that are still the consensus today. But their songs are quite different. So if we go back to the Chiff Chaff, it still kind of has that, that high pitched sound, same kind of pitch, but it's more punctuated and they throw in some sort of turrets noise. It's kind of like.
1: Yeah, you're going to have to. I think you're going to have to like really visually. Uh, I think you're really going to have to auditory like demonstrate this. Yeah, I'll, so, I'm going to uh... try.
0: So it's kind of like. <laughs> um, I have to have a sound file here because that's not. I just. Uh, I
1: think that's perfect. So, I mean, I can hardly tell the difference between the sound file and <laughs> and, and, and you. It's, so, uh... so you
0: can tell that these these songs do sound quite different when you hear them together. But if you just heard a chiff-chaff in the forest, you, you might think it's a willow warbler. So if you're in the UK, go into some woodland, listen out for either of these beauties and know that they will be flying all the way back to Africa soon, which is pretty amazing. And what's more you can log your sightings at nature's calendar project by the woodland trust which tracks the effects of weather and climate on wildlife across the uk so it's some really important work you can get involved with and the recordings they've got here go all the way back to the 1730s up until right now so i've put the link for nature's calendar project on our website on the citizen science page so you can have a look and record anything that you find
1: oh that is that's super cool and uh yeah Thank you for giving us an auditory rendition of The uh, Call of the Wibber. You are very welcome. So my Great uh, Migration is, well, a literal name for it is the Great Migration. So I'm going to be talking about the Blue Wildebeest uh, in the Great Migration across the plains of East Africa. And the Blue Wildebeest is is the one that takes part in this, as opposed to the other species, the Black Wildebeest. But yes, the Blue Wildebeest... There are three African populations um, that take part in this. Abs- it, is, it is the oldest and one of the largest migrations on planet Earth. So I'm going to be talking about the blue wildebeest in what is known as the Great Migration across the plains of East Africa, as opposed to the other species of wildebeest, which is the black wildebeest. But this is the blue wildebeest, Conachetes toronus, which, is, which yeah takes part in one of the oldest and one of the largest migrations on planet Earth. So this is basically just a mass exodus of of count well it's not countless i have a number uh it's about with about 1.5 to 2 million wildebeests take part in wandering around the savannah of east africa and it takes place in kenya and tanzania primarily and it's three african Populations kind of moving in tandem in, in a circle. As I previously said, this is about 1.5 million individuals to about 2 million wildebeest, as well as 200,000 uh, zebras in a kind of entourage with a scattering of antelope roadies to go along with them. They're all moving together? They're all moving together. It's kind of cool. Ooh. So this is actually a circular migration, um, and they're following rains, and it happens over the entire course of the year and it happens from the verdant Masai Mara up in the north well the north of the range in Kenya to the lower lush plains of the Serengeti in Tanzania and in total they cover se- uh, 65,000 on a quick year to 78,000 square kilometers on their march several national parks have been set aside including the what the Serengeti National Park the Ngorongoro Crater National uh, Park area the Masai Mara National Park all of these National parks have been set aside specifically for this migration to keep it safe. Down in the south of this migration in Tanzania, where they spend about seven to eight months uh, in the Ngorogoro crater region, it's about November and the rains are hitting. It is a really rich time in terms of food. And the herd just spreads across the landscape. And when it's even better, they go down to Lake Manyara, which is down to the southeast. And it's just a, it's a great time for everyone. And, and when time recording, it's about month or two away and it's it's getting there as the year goes on into the next year everyone moves a little bit west uh into the serengeti national park it's getting drier but the reason why the serengeti is so good is because of the volcanic ash so it's narrowed it down to the specific volcano which has actually made the land so fertile in this region that is the Massi volcano died about two million years ago and uh, coated the surrounding area in ash uh, as well as that, it's got a very alive neighbour called El Doño Lengai, or the Mountain of, the, of, of God, uh, which is erupting almost constantly. But this ash has made the area so rich in phosphorus and has made the plants so rich in phosphorus, so the phosphorus is needed for fertility, appetite, milk production and bone structure as your bones are made of calcium phosphates. So it's no surprise out here uh, in the West in the Serengeti in the February to March period after bulk eating far more than they should be capable of uh, it's when 90% of the female population gives birth in three weeks. And that's about 500,000 babies born in three weeks at about 8,000 a day. Do you know how long they stay pregnant for, like the gestation period. It is about eight and a half months, I believe. So this is planned. This is, they actually probably conceived in the dry season, at the moment as I'm, we're recording this, uh, right before the wet season hits. Ready. Lovely image,
0: e- thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You're
1: welcome. Right before the, um, yeah, they, they all go west to the Serengeti National Park with all the grass and and the verdant landscape. Um, and it really is it is they're wandering these babies wander around after one minute and they are suckling within three minutes and in a log i was reading about from a scientist who studied them he called them the most precocious babies in the animal kingdom
0: precocious in what way
1: (laughs) as in they um after three minutes of literally being in the open air they're already suckling and they'll stay there for up to 10 minutes even when their mom is walking off Oh my gosh. Commitment (laughs) to milk. They know what they want and they're going to stay there. But it is uh, so much uh, water. The landscape is is full of grass and also full of animals. It is a bonanza for the lions and hyenas, but there's so many babies that the vast majority do in fact survive. But they will cross rivers and ravines to get vital nutrients and water to keep the nomadic herd moving. And they can move up to 10 kilometers a day in kind of pockets and populations moving throughout the landscape
0: i just want to say something to the listener here i could tell i've got the notes for when we were researching the podcast up in front of me and i've just just got to what tom's talking about now and i can tell he was really excited (laughs) by this because these notes are just garbled typos (laughs) and notes (laughs) that you're typing at speed please
1: continue okay. <laughs> so they will cross rivers and landscapes to get to vital nutrients and water basically keeping this nomadic herd moving across the landscape from south to west and yeah they're traveling up to 10 kilometers a day and if you it, it is now getting into the drier season past march if you do go the wrong direction away from where the rains have been or away from the rivers uh this can put you off the path of food and water basically and it may just kill you and your herd you're traveling with. But seeing them do this, I've seen some footage, uh, my friends actually seen it in person, apparently it is the most incredible thing to see. It, it is just a tidal wave of these animals and really interestingly after studying some of them, some scientists what have found out what was thought to be just chaos in this herd it wasn't it was revealed that they do the same thing as flocking birds do uh, when they're murmurating in the sky especially with starlings they have something called swarm intelligence if there is an obstacle i.e a crocodile infested river they'll all kind of line up on the bank and they'll watch until there's just a there's a huge huge amount of them and then one of them will be pushed off the edge and that's when it begins that's when they literally a tidal wave will rush down the bank splash into water and the point is to overwhelm the obstacle be it crocodile heavy river they will just go swarm at They can't catch all of us exactly 99.99 of them will survive and and the ones that are lost it's sad but you know there's two million of them behind them uh, in terms of fatalities, because there's crocodile-infested rivers, yeah, they uh, this this ecosystem which the wildebeest provide in their movement uh, keeps nine thousand hyenas alive in the Serengeti, keeps nothing three thousand lions alive, cheetahs grab the baby ones when they're exposed. You've got crocodiles grabbing them when they cross rivers, the paracol grabbing the baby ones when no one's looking. They get trampled, exhaustion, hunger. Every single year, 250,000 of them die. Even next to that, that's nearly an eighth when compared to the 2 million. And of the zebra as well, out of the 200,000 zebra, tagging along, about 30,000 of those die as well. But when you're looking at like half a million being born in a year, that's... It kind of gets balanced out brutal ecosystem it's a brutal ecosystem but it does keep the serengeti and the entire ecosystem around there alive so now we're approaching may Mayish june ish time and the migrations have started going north up into the masai mara in the south of kenya the landscape is getting drier and drier water is running out the migrations have spread out far more to try and get more food and this here is it's the kind of hard bit and they're going to stay here until late august hey that's, that's time for recording that's where they are chilling out right now in the south of kenya then as soon as september starts and this is one of the driest parts of the year and it it's it's still just going to get drier until the rain's hit so now in september they're going to start moving south again from the masai mara down to where they started the year in the ngoro conservation area down in Tanzania and they're going to wait there until October trying to eke a living on the dusty scrub of a landscape and the yellow sandy plains. And then the rains begin. This is the deluge that just promotes new growth across the landscape. And this happens in November. And this is the point the wildebeest have been waiting for. And the first time the babies, six months old at this point, would have seen this spectacle, which I think is amazing. The smell of wet grass and the fog in the air hanging over a map of yellow flowers that literally erupt overnight. There is so much food that everyone relaxes, spreads out. This, this here is what the herds have been waiting for. And life is good for a time and and it was good and (laughs) and that's going to happen in in the next few months probably when when you're listening to this
0: this brings us to animal of the episode this is i was expecting cheering (laughs) this is a small competition between the hosts too late oh, now. I'm sorry. This is pity cheering. Anyway, animal of the episode is a small competition between hosts. So we'll each present an animal that's related to the episode, and then we'll put the poll up on Twitter. And then the next episode, we'll tell you which one got the most
1: votes. And which is undoubtedly the best animal and also the best co-host.
0: No, you, you always say <laughs> this, it's about which animal you like the best or represent, yep, never okay. mind. <laughs> I can't say this every time right last episode we were talking about whether the yeti crab um, given to us by tom or the shinkakara shrimp given by myself was going to be the most popular out of our listeners and we put the poll on twitter and the votes are
1: in and i have those results so yeah it was which which extreme animal was the favorite of our listeners and it's yeah interesting result i can confirm becca
0: I don't know uh, I haven't seen th- these I
1: haven't seen this yet, so yeah the the result between your shrimp and my crab it was a tie at fifty percent and fifty percent.
0: Oh my God, there is no
1: favorite they're is, equally
0: awesome it,
1: yeah, I mean, I hate to see my yeti crab you know go as low as your shrimp, but
0: um <laughs> is that a joke on on how deep in the sea we can find them?
1: ah uh, let's move on. Uh... <laughs> So yeah, thank you very much for voting in that one. And we can say there is there is no clear there is no clear winner. So um we're gonna have to fight fight it out in the next one, I think.
0: So on to this week's animally episode. So I would like to present the painted lady butterflies, Vanessa Cardui is their Latin name. They are described as a miracle migration or as I like to call them, painted ladies on tour. They are elegant, their wings are yellow, brown, cream and orange, and they just look lovely. They weigh less than one gram, and they have a brain the size of a pinhead. Every summer, they come here to the UK. During the other seasons, they travel around Europe, to the Arctic Circle, all the way down to Central Africa.
1: That literally is on tour. That is a... World tour.
0: That is Painted Ladies on tour, yeah. (laughs) So 9,000 mile round trip, that's almost double the length of the migrations undertaken by the monarch butterflies in North America, which
1: is far more famous. Uh, Oh my gosh, I was going to say they're cool, but no, these are cooler. These are for Yes,
0: they are not the miracle migrators like the Painted Ladies are. So this whole journey, though, it's not undertaken by individual butterflies. It's not like you have one butterfly that goes all the way around. It happens across a series of steps by up to six successive generations. So one generation has babies, that generation has babies, six times. And between all of them, they make that whole route. So the painted ladies that return to Africa in the autumn are several generations removed from their ancestors who left Africa earlier that year. And this was found out in 2012 by the University of York, who published it in ecography, which is like geography, but eco. E- ecography?
1: <laughs> ecography? Ecography. That's
0: weird. <laughs> That's a journal name, by the way. So, first, we thought these butterflies were just taken by the wind, and that's how they ended up coming back in a full circle. But this study shows that they're actually really sophisticated travellers. Why do they do it, though, across generations? Seems a bit... That's
1: insane. Yeah, how do well, they, they know? They can talk of... to their kids
0: and tell them where to go. So. But why do they do it? It allows them to exploit abundant but time-limited resources that only grow in certain times in certain places, so they follow that route through the year. Yeah, kind of like the, the wildebeest following the rains in the grass, but butterflies following around the world, around there, their route around the world.
1: With the brain the size of a pinhead, yes. so that is actually incredible.
0: Also, they can fly really, really fast, 30 miles per hour. Can you fly that fast, Tom? I can't fly that fast. I,
1: I'm going to...
0: No. Yeah, so they're painted lady
1: butterflies.
0: So there's some ongoing research. Another citizen science project I want to bring up. This is a global one and it tracks the painted lady butterfly migrations around the world. You can help to explore the migrations from where you live at butterflymigration.org and become a citizen scientist. I'll also put this on our website on the citizen scientists page. And through them you can learn how to find the butterflies and how to report them. And that. That's my animal of the episode, painted lady butterflies, painted ladies on tour.
1: I've been thinking about how they might, through generationally, go on this massive route. And you say how it's there, they're kind of making the most of a resource, which is only appears at that time of year. And that's quite interesting. So I'm assuming when I say let's one one population is in Spain, let's say, and the next stop would be France. Well, the... Food source in Spain, for example, might be drying up. And then, as the new generation is growing and the old one is dying out because they've got such a short generation time, um there is only one place to go. And they're kind of almost following the season, they're following the temperature, and the temperature with it brings the food source that they want and, and the blooming of, of the plants that they feed on. And then, when that one goes out, I'm assuming as the season progresses yet further, the temperature changes yet higher. And so they go further north. Maybe I'm. I'm just. I'm just trying to.
0: It's just like the wildebeest follow the rain. That same idea, according is, to the study. Yeah,
1: that's. That's really cool. That's really really cool. Um, yeah. So, my animal of the episode is the saltwater crocodile. And now, okay, this is quite difficult because I was faced with I. Was faced with a few options here because. I wanted to find an unusual one and you've got dragonflies which actually remarkably do something very similar to the painted ladies on tour um which becca was talking about a second ago the and and additionally you've got cow nose rays which are amazing which go around california and then you've got the one i was super tempted to go with was the golden jellyfish of jellyfish lake but they're jellyfish, and I think migration would be a strong word for what they do, which is just been dragged off. around, surely. <laughs> which is just, well, they do. No, they swim up uh, to the surface at night time and then back down to the bottom of the lake in the daytime. But...
0: Oh, jellyfish Lake sounds like
1: a magical place. It is great. Golden jellyfish of Jellyfish Lake. Look it up.
0: We should do some travelling then. <laughs>
1: yeah. um, so yeah, I went with crocodiles. Uh, crocodiles are powerful hunters, but what they're not known for is swimming huge distances. They are powerful swimmers but they swim for short periods of time they're not known to migrate as such but the saltwater crocodile of australia even more sluggishly sw- swimming than most of the other ones it's one of the largest crocodiles in the world at 23 foot long seven meters um that is that is three and a half of me that is terrifying and you they quite do and they can weigh almost a ton certain ones have spread from island to island uh, around the south pacific as well as skirting the coast of australia to find new rivers certain scientists are following them with sonar and how they get around is quite cool so they're not swimming all the way they find a, a current and the see they sit on the surface of the water they find the current that they want and then they just surf to the next island they just they just surf it's Surfing crocodiles, what can't kind you of love about it? And then they use their four, four three and a half, four metre long tail to steer uh, when they get close. So, one particularly adventurous or lost, I'm going to go with adventurous, uh, individual was tracked travelling 366 miles or 590 kilometres in one journey across 25 days. And for a crocodile which isn't supposed to swim very far or very fast, that is an incredibly far, like, long What's he way doing to travel. Over there? It was just loving it. That's why I said adventurous or lost, but me. Uh, <laughs>
0: no, maybe he was going on holiday. Maybe we were wrong.
1: <laughs> so here we yeah around the South Pacific Islands as well. So what we've got here is surfing crocodiles. Terrifying, but I think super cool. And that is that is my that is my animal of the episode. So
0: those are your choices: painted ladies on tour or surfer dude crocodiles. Check them out on Twitter and vote for your favourite.
1: So that is all for this episode. That's all we've got for you. Um, Becca, where can we be found on social media?
0: You can find us on Twitter at Darwin Black Book. That's Darwin without the S, so Darwin Black Book. Or use the hashtag, hashtag
1: DBB. If you do like this, please do let us know. Tweet at us, leave a review on iTunes. Only if it's nice. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I joke. Um, And yes, you can find me at thomasland.co.uk.
0: And you can find me at rebeccajwhite.co.uk. We want to say a big thank you to the British Ecological Society for funding the start-up of this podcast. And you can find them and join the society at britishecologicalsociety.org.
1: And thank you to my mate Ed, uh, who designed our Darwin Head logo. So thank you very much for that. And just to leave you with a quote from Sir David Attenborough's Life of Birds. Birds were flying from continent to continent long before we were. They reached the coldest place on Earth, Antarctica, before we did. They can survive in the hottest of deserts. Some can even remain on the wing for years at a time. They can girdle the globe. Now we have taken over the Earth and the sea and the sky, but with skill and care and knowledge, we can ensure that there is still a place on Earth for birds, in all their beauty and their variety, if we want to. And surely, we should.